Thanks, everyone, for joining me for this week's edition of the Sabbath School Commentary. Our lesson study this week is entitled The Ultimate Rest, and it's a really good lesson. And my hope and my prayer is that you're really blessed spending time with me as I comment on some of the lessons this week's lesson brings out. I want to have a short prayer uh, before we jump into the study and ask God to bless us, to guide us, and to lead us. Father in heaven, we believe that we can pray to you and that you hear us. Uh, We're small and you're big. We're down here on the earth. You're up there in the sky. We know that uh, without you, we can do nothing. And if you don't give us your spirit, then we won't understand your word and what it's saying to us specifically. I remember that scripture in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 that says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And so, send the Spirit who inspired holy men of God to speak and and guide our thoughts and, and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, our lesson begins in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The disciples of Jesus are looking up into the sky and they see him ascending into what appears to be clouds. But the Bible clarifies that these are not clouds. These are angels, a cloud of angels. And they envelop the Son of God as he ascends up into the sky. And the disciples, the Bible says, they are staring. They are gazing up into the sky, up into the heavens. And when Jesus travels beyond their sight, they continue to look. And an angel appears next to them, looks like a man, and he says, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring up into the heavens? This same Jesus who you've seen ascend will also come again in the same manner that he ascended up into the sky. Now, have you ever been in a similar situation where you have a loved one, a friend, a family member who is leaving you and you love them so much and you're going to miss them so much that you just can't stop looking in their direction when they're driving away or flying away? Like I've been in that situation before and you don't want them to leave and you're so emotionally interconnected with that person that you just have to look and and you want them to know that you're looking and you want them to remember you looking because you care for them and you don't want them to go. And I think that this is to a degree what the disciples are experiencing. Jesus is, is not just their Lord, he's their savior and he's their friend. They're very close interpersonally. And so they don't want him to go. When I was a kid, my grandparents used to always walk us out when we would leave their house and as we drove away in our car, they would just stare and they would just wave and they would just smile. And you could just tell that they really did. They really loved you and they wanted to, to look at you until the very last minute that they could. And as a kid, I didn't understand. I I felt good about it. I appreciated my grandparents, uh, you know, doing that, but I didn't understand fully. And it's because I was a child and did not have the capacity to love to the extent that they loved 
And now as a parent, I understand why grandparents would do that. This is John. This is James. This is Peter. And Jesus is not just the Christ, the son of the living God. He's their friend. They've seen him operate. They've seen him in action. He has opened their minds to the kingdom of God and what it really involves and what the commandments of God look like in, in, as they're being acted out in flesh and blood form. And the embodiment of God's kingdom is in front of them for three and a half years. It's Jesus. It's, it's the son of Joseph, the son of Mary. He's the incarnate God of the universe. And in the midst of the great controversy, he's revealed to these 12 men who he is. And he wants them to go, therefore, and to teach all nations. Um, but he's, he's going now and he's promised that he'll send them the Holy Spirit and that, that he'll be with them always, but, but that still had to be real hard. And they're gazing up into the heavens and this angel communicates to them, hey guys, he's coming back. He's going now, but he's coming back. He himself said in John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it wasn't so, I would have told you, I'm going to go prepare a place for you not rooms, those rooms are already there, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you through my intercessory work as high priest. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again to receive you to myself. So where I am, you can be also. John, as well as the rest of the disciples, endured a lot of difficulty and they, they had a lot of struggles and challenges in their life. Struggles and challenges that many of us would fail to really be able to relate to properly. In Revelation chapter 1, we see John on the island of Patmos. And he's on the island of Patmos. It's a small island in the Aegean Sea because he's been consigned there by the Roman emperor. And, and the Bible says that he's there for, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And so the implication is, is, I've been imprisoned here because uh, I preached the gospel, because I went out and told the truth about God. And I encourage people to accept that truth and to walk into that truth. And I'm being persecuted here on the island of Patmos. Now, Christian tradition suggests that John had been sentenced to death and that they tried to boil him in a pot of oil, but they did not succeed. He was supernaturally sustained alive. And so, therefore, was sent out onto this island of Patmos to just, you know, live out the rest of his life, I suppose. But what would life on Patmos be like? You know, I mean, John was not killed. If, if it's true, John was not killed in the boiling oil. But I'm sure it would have had some physical effect on him. Like, don't you think like to some degree it would have a physical effect on John? Like, you, you've been boiled? I mean, I'm sure he's not in better health after being boiled than he was before being boiled in oil, right? That would be a traumatic experience. That would be a difficult experience. If he's being boiled in oil, he may have found some, he may have seen some of his friends, his family members persecuted, killed, even who knows. So now he's living in Patmos. What's it like on Patmos? Does he have running water there? Uh, 
can can he maintain a decent level of sanitation? What's the food like on Patmos? How many modern conveniences is he enjoying? Does he have, does he have access to toiletries? And, and you know, can he shave? Can he bathe? What does that look like? What does that mean? What what is he eating for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner? What comforts can he enjoy? What what physical comforts does he have at his disposal so that he could find some comfort, some peace? Really, he has almost none. He's outcast, he's abandoned, and he's imprisoned after he's been tortured and tormented and seen his friends and family tortured and tormented. And here he is on the Isle of Patmos. And I want to read with you verses 9 through 19 of Revelation chapter 1. John says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So here's John on the Sabbath in the Holy Spirit He goes into vision and he hears a voice behind him. Then the Bible says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and it was as if they were made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and to hell. Therefore, write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Guys, the suffering servant of the Son of God is exiled on Patmos. He has been removed from all earthly support and comfort. His situation is tragic and terrible and unimaginably difficult, but he still has access to God through Jesus, and he's in vision on the Sabbath, and he sees his friend, he sees his brother, he sees his teacher, he sees his Lord, and he sees his Savior, In the sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle which God erected and not man. The one who was dead and who came back to life and who has the keys of life and death. And and he's been given this this commission. I'm going to tell you some things and I want you to write them down. And they're going to be about the future. And they're going to be for the churches. And I'm going to give a roadmap to my people that will guide them and lead them to the very end of time. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's amazing. John is shown Jesus in the revelation 
to encourage him in, in, the, in, the, in the situation that he's in, in the suffering that he's in. Further to this, God reveals Jesus to John before revealing future events to John. The future for the Christian church is going to be as challenging as the world was for John. And so the hosts of hell are arrayed against the kingdom of God and do everything and anything they can to oppose it. And so this is what John was enduring, and this is what Christians of future generations would endure. And it would not stop until the bitter end, until the consummation of all things, when Jesus himself returns. Now, the book of Revelation shows a new heaven and a new earth, and it describes the conditions of the world after the second coming. How, you know, there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more seas of separation. No more of the, of the burdensome, painful, difficult realities that people face in this life. So the point that, the, that, we're, that we're bringing out by, by, by sharing these things about the book of Revelation and what the lesson is bringing out is that we find rest and peace to overcome our difficulties and maintain our faith in God because God through his revelation shows us himself, shows us the conquering King Jesus, the one who conquered death and hell in heaven as our intercessor, as our friend, as our brother. Now, as you read Revelation 1, you also see Jesus is shown walking through the midst of his churches. So as John is looking up, seeing Jesus in the sanctuary, he sees Jesus walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks that are in the sanctuary and is told that these seven candlesticks are representations of the seven churches, meaning I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, not bodily, not physically, but through the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that's bringing this revelation to John. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he sees the risen Christ interceding for him. And, 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 he, and he's, he's walking between the candlesticks, meaning, I'm near to you, John. I'm not far from you, John. And, and you, you, you can have that assurance and he reveals himself as the one who conquered death. So, so you don't even have to be afraid of death, in essence. Now, the book of Revelation, as I, as I mentioned, points out to us what happens at the end of the story. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things that must shortly come to pass. Uh, it, it, obviously, it's a book that, that communicates to Jesus' followers what would happen in the future from the, from the standpoint of John all the way to the consummation of all things, the second coming of Jesus. Now, this brings us peace and gives us assurance. I used to live in a very rainy place called Vancouver, British Columbia, and I lived there for two years, and I don't like the rain a lot. I like the rain when it's not coming down every day. When you're in Vancouver, you can go through months of time where it rains and it's cloudy and it's cold and it's miserable outside. I'm an outdoorsy person. I like I like the natural world and I like to be in it. And so it's tough to be, you know, in the rain for three months or four months. It's tough. 
I got on a plane once to go visit my family in Florida and I'm on the plane and we're ascending up into the clouds as you do. And we began to ascend above the clouds. And as anyone who flies on a plane will, will know that once you get above the canopy of the clouds, it's sunny and it's bright and it's beautiful. And so I go to Florida, I spend time with my family and then I come back and I remember we were up above the clouds, you know, getting ready to descend, come into our final descent into Vancouver International Airport and and we went back down into the clouds again, down into the rain. And interestingly, from that point forward, the rain wasn't so troublesome to me. It wasn't so depressing. And it wasn't so depressing because I had been above the clouds and I had seen the sun and I saw the blue sky and I knew that every single day of the year, if it rains, if it's cloudy, if it's miserable, above those clouds, it's sunny and it's bright and it's beautiful. And this is a metaphor. The clouds of the future, the uncertainty, the instability, the difficulty, the chaos, the satanic oppression, all, beyond all of it is the sun. And this is what John is seeing in the book of Revelation. And it's what we see in the book of Revelation. And God has shown that to us to give us peace. Now, the lesson takes us in Monday's lesson uh, to, to the fact of the second coming. It takes us to Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 8, and verses 23 through 31. And I'm just going to read those passages with you um, just real quick. Matthew 24, for those of you guys who don't know, I think most of you would know, is, is, a, is a key passage in regards to the second coming of Jesus. It's Jesus teaching about the second coming and, and really the manner of his coming, the condition of the world around the time of his coming. And um, we, we begin to read here, Matthew chapter 24, verses four through eight. And Jesus answered and said to the disciples, see to it that no one misleads you. This is in the context of his coming and the end of the world, his giving an answer to his disciples about that. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But these things are merely the beginning of sorrows. We jump down to verse 23 through verse 31. Check this out. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning shines from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. We continue, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of heaven, sorry, the four winds from one end of the sky to another. So Jesus describing his his second coming says it will be like lightning. Now, I'm from Florida and we have magnificent lightning storms there. We have great lightning storms here too, but I've never seen a lightning storm in, in Australia yet that has matched the lightning storms I used to see as a kid growing up in the state of Florida. It rains virtually every day in mid-afternoon you know, summer, summertime in the mid-afternoon in Florida. And, and the lightning is so bright that if you were to close your eyes and to squeeze your eyes tight as, as, as tight as you could, when the lightning flashed, you could see it. It was bright, stunningly bright. Jesus describes his second coming like lightning. This indicates that the second coming of the Son of God will be a visible coming. Like, an, like you can see it. And, and, and also, you remember, we were in Acts chapter 1, where the angel was standing next to John and James and the rest of the apostles and said, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing up into the heaven? You're standing here in sorrow and in sadness, looking at your friend leaving, but he's coming back and, and he's going to come back in the same manner that you have seen him go. So they saw him go like, visibly, like they saw him and he was physically ascending up into the sky. This was not some spiritual ascension, like where he just kind of metaphorically ascended into the sky, but really just disappeared into the ether. No, he actually went up. He went up into the sky and the angels say he's going to come down the same way. And here in Matthew 24, Jesus says, look, there's going to be some crazy times coming, but don't let the crazy times freak you out. I mean, this is just how human history works because human nature is flawed and People mess things up. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be pestilence and famines. I mean, this this happens on earth. This is the earth we live in. But don't let your heart be troubled. This is just the beginning of of, of, of sorrows, of labor pains. Um, And so these things are going to increase and intensify these typical human like problems, these typical difficulties for the human race, for those who live on planet earth. They're going to continue to the end, and then, but they're the beginning of labor pain. So at the end, they're going to intensify. And then we jump down, you know, to the middle of the chapter, and Jesus is saying, look, he, he, ta- he talks about, you know, further the conditions, and then what his coming will actually be like. It'll be uh, magnificent. It'll be bright. And he even warns, like, don't, don't, don't believe in any testimony of the coming of Christ if it doesn't involve like a visible event that's like lightning, like like as the lightning shines from the east, even until the west. Okay, so we we deduce from from the word of God that the coming of Jesus, that his second coming will be a, a literal event, like a, something we can see, and it will be climactic. It will be powerful. The book of Revelation talks about mountains being removed from their place and. And the islands being, you know, sunk into the ocean. Peter talks about the elements melting with fervent heat. And so it's a cataclysmic event. 
You'll see, every eye will see, Revelation 1 says, this is a visible event. It's a powerful event. It's, a, it's, it's, actu- it's an actuality. It's a physically real event. So this is important to know. Jesus is actually coming to save us. He's, he's actually returning to this world. Now, the Bible teaches us in Matthew 24, and the lesson points this out, that iniquity is going to abound on the earth. But whoever endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world for a witness, and then the end would come. So couched in the midst of this great prophecy by Jesus about the conditions of the world at the end of time, and him describing himself and his coming at the end of time with all the holy angels, I mean, that's a powerful event, uh, as lightning, etc., etc. He says, look, at the end of time, iniquity, basically, I didn't quote the full passage. It says, because iniquity will be ubiquitous, it will be universal. The love of many will wax cold, but he that endures to the end will be saved. And whoever preaches this gospel of the kingdom, oh, sorry, but he who endures until the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world for a witness, and then the end will come. So I want you to think about this. We find rest and peace and comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming again, but we're commissioned by God to to preach the gospel to every creature. And and when that task is accomplished, then the end will come. Now, there's there's a couple, a lot of interesting lessons in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14 which I quoted part of that passage just now. But but think about this. Jesus' teaching, love is going to wane at the end of time because sin is going to abound. So sin is antithetical to love, according to Jesus. You can, you can extract that understanding from his, from his teaching, from his words. As iniquity and sin spreads over the earth, love disappears. The love of many grows cold. So sin causes love to grow cold. And why is that? Well, because sin is antithetical to love. I would even say that sin is the opposite of love. The Bible says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfilling of God's law. Think about that. So if love is the fulfilling of God's law, then God's law is love in action. So because iniquity or sin, which is the violation of God's law, increases at the end of time, love decreases because sin is antithetical to love because love is the fulfilling of God's law. And then it says, but, but, but he who endures till the end will be saved. Endures in what? Endures in love. Like endures in, in, in love. Doesn't just love, you know, when, it's, when the world is filled with love. Like it's easy. This is an interesting thought. It's easy for us to to spread the love of God, to maintain our commitment to the laws of God, which are expressions of love, and to truly follow Jesus till the end. It, it's it's easy to do to, to it's it's easy to love God and His laws and His ways when it's it when that's like okay to do, but but when the world becomes devoid of it devoid of love, devoid of the law of God, like that's when it becomes, you know, a real, a real challenge to endure, right? Like, um, but, but the Bible says that he that endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for witness. So 
the ones preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel at the end of the world as a witness before the end comes will be those who love until the end, who pursue righteousness, the righteousness of Christ until the end, who, who hold strong. So, yeah, the world, it just gets darker and darker and worse and worse and colder and colder. And God says, don't be affected by that. Don't let your love grow cold. Endure until the end. And really, the only way that this can happen is if we, like John, are seeing Jesus on a regular basis because love is a heaven-born gift that's given to us. And faith, you know, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, and thy word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's, it, you know, we need to see God in his word and to be inculcating, you know, Jesus and relating to him, you know, inculcating the truths of scripture and relating to God on a meaningful personal level regularly so that we can be energized and empowered to, to, to endure until the end and to preach this gospel to all the world for witness. There's a correlation in that teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24 between loving and enduring until the end and preaching the gospel, you know, loving people enough to preach the gospel, to tell them the truth and to not be affected by the condition of the world around you. I, now, I hope that all makes sense. Well, guys, it's been 30 minutes long. We've gone through two days of lessons. I want to just touch on Tuesday's lesson before we conclude. Um, Tuesday's lesson talks about our marching orders and basically uh, just points us to Revelation 14, 6 through 12. Now, I think it's important to understand Revelation 14, 6 through 12 in its context. In, in, In Revelation 13 and the events that Revelation 13 predicts for the end of time is the context within which we see the three angels' messages being preached. So a history of medieval Europe is given to John in Revelation 13, and then a prediction that what was seen on a continental scale in medieval Europe is going to be seen on a global scale at the end of time. And there's going to be a test of allegiance, a test of whose side are you on, man's side? Or God's side. And uh, Revelation 14 comes, you know, as, as God's response to what is transpiring at the end of time. So a mark of allegiance is being placed on people uh, and to, to, to side with, with powers that are inspired and directed by satanic forces. And it's, it's, it's the glory of man. And, and, and if you don't receive the mark, if you don't receive the sign of allegiance, the Bible says economic sanctions will be imposed against you and you, you could even be killed. Uh, and so Revelation 14 is basically showing that even though the whole world seems to be under the sway of satanic forces, not all the world is. And 144,000 are shown in Revelation 14. And they follow the lamb wherever he goes, not just when it's easy or convenient or pleasant, but they follow the lamb wherever he goes, just like John, just like the apostles. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, even through the end of time. And then the three angels' messages is is presented. So these three angels' messages are the messages of those who do not conform at the end of time, who do not capitulate at the end of time. And the Bible says they, they, they keep the commandments and the faith of Jesus. 
And they proclaimed this message that, that the world should fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And they should worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. Not this beastly, paganized, you know, perverse form of Christianity. And, and I want to say this to you, and this is just a, a, something I learned from a book called, I didn't learn this from a book, but it's something that really was highlighted by a book by historian Tom Holland called Dominion. He basically proposes in this book, by the way, he's one of the foremost, he's one of the, most, one of the world's leading historians when it comes to classical civilizations. And, and one of the things he says in this book, Dominion, which is all about the history of, of Christianity and the rise of Christianity and how it so dominated the West that people don't even know in the West how Christian they are, even when they're not Christian. He basically says that, that what we see in Western civilization between the secular left and the religious right is not really religion versus secularism. It's really, in his, in his estimation, it's religion versus religion because all of the ethics, all of the values, all the morals of the secular left have been derived historically from Christianity. And the views that they hold, the moral views that they hold about looking out for the weak and caring for the, the, cast, the cast down and the downtrodden, you know, that, that whole idea of, you know, human dignity being possessed by every individual, like that, that, that concept, that, that idea was foreign to the, to the classical world, to the civilizations of the, of the ancient world, but, but they're ubiquitous in today's Western civilization. And he basically says, as an atheist, the more I became familiar with historical, you know, realities, the more I began to realize that I was Christian in my disposition. But as a secularist, he's, he's a paganized Christian, right? So paganized Christianity is not just the religious right who has, you know, pagan doctrines and teachings that they use, that they pawn off as biblical, but, but Paganized Christianity is also the secular left because all of the values and morals and viewpoints of the secular left are essentially Christian when, when, when judged in the light of history, they're Christian values. The, so the whole social justice movements, all the social justice movements and the concern for the weak and the, the oppressed, I mean, nobody in Rome, nobody in Persia, nobody in Babylon, nobody in Greece cared about the weak, the poor, the downtrodden, the cast out. It was only till a belief system arose where God himself became a victim. Did anybody care about victims? In Judaism, which, you know, was the gospel in embryo, we definitely see, you know, care for and concern for the weak. And we see the love of God. We see the gospel 100%. But Judaism was exceptional in the history, in the context of the history of the world, besides other very rare exceptions. But so, so Tom, Tom points this out. So what we see in Revelation 13 is, is Europe, paganized Christianity. And then we see the end of time, paganized Christianity sweeping the world and dominating the world and, and imposing, you know, a mark upon people, a mark of allegiance to human authority, human wisdom, human, um, you know, power and glory. And then the 144,000 are presented in contrast. And the Bible has there then, you know, the three angels' messages. Worship God, not the beast. He made the world, and the world was great and beautiful and amazing. He's not like these oppressive human systems that dominate and force and compel and coerce. 
and try to take your individual dignity and rights away to be a free autonomous human being. But, but it says that those who receive the mark of the beast, they have no rest day or night. And this is interesting. This is fascinating. We as Seventh-day Adventists believe that the Sabbath becomes an issue at the end of time. And, and that those who accept the, the biblical Sabbath of the seventh day are going to be persecuted. Now, some people in the Adventist church and outside of the Adventist church, they, they marvel at this idea and they're like, wow, that's just nowhere in the Bible. That's just like Ellen White's writings. But that's actually not the case. I mean, just consider Revelation 13 and 14. So, so medieval Christianity enforced Sunday as a, as a day to honor papal authority. Like that, that's a historical indisputable fact. So paganized Christianity enforced Sunday as a sign of its authority. Historically, the Bible depicts that this is going to transpire again. And that if you don't worship the image to the beast, which is the system that's set up, that's similar to ancient medieval Christianity, then you're going to be killed. So, so worship is an issue and the reestablishment of, of ancient realities is going to transpire on a global scale. And then you see God saying like, Hey, like don't worship the beast, worship the one who made. And then the largest quote from the 10 commandments in the new Testament is quoted in the first angel's message. And it's from the Sabbath. Hmm. That's interesting. That's curious. Okay. And then it says that those that receive the mark of the beast will have no rest. Well, the Sabbath was a day to commemorate and rest in the finished work of God, to rest in the creative works of God and to rest in his salvation. And then it says that the patience of the saints is keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Hmm. I mean, guys, there's all this allusion to Sabbatarianism in the three angels messages. And then the Bible says in Revelation 13 that that what we're going to see on a global scale is what we saw in medieval Europe. And in medieval Europe, you had enforced Sunday worship, not so much just because you had to be religious, but also because this is a sign of loyalty to our culture, to our system, to our people, right? And so anyways, the first angel's message, which is a message from God to the world at the end of time says, and I saw another angel, it says, in verse six, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice. And then the three angels messages are proclaimed. So there's a preamble and then the three angels messages. So I saw another angel in the midst of heaven. And this angel had the everlasting gospel to preach to all the world. And then it says, he says with a loud voice, and then the first angel's message is proclaimed. And then it says, I saw another angel. That's a second message. And then Babylon has fallen is the second message. And then the third message, and a third angel followed them saying, if any man worship the beast in his image or receive his mark, you know, it goes on. So the Bible says that, that, the, that the angels have the everlasting gospel to preach. Now, what do they preach? They preach the three angels' messages, which means that if you preach the three angels' messages the way that God intended them to be preached, they are an articulation at the end of time of the 
everlasting good news. Now, this is our commission to preach to the world, the everlasting gospel, the good news of who God really is and what God has really done for the human race. This is the task of the the people of God at the end of time. So I wanted to make that point for you that the three angels' messages are not preached like you don't have like the everlasting gospel preached and then the three angels' messages preached. The everlasting the, the everlasting gospel is the three angels' message messages preached correctly. And we can we can have a whole study on on how that is and why that's the case um, by seeing the gospel in the three angels' messages. I mean, the message to fear God and give Him glory. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a beautiful, you know freeing message to the person who has been under the illusion that God is like what Revelation 13 has depicted him to be. You follow? Fear God and give him glory. Don't give the beast glory for the hour of his judgment has come. He's going to judge wickedness and evil and oppression. Did you know that's good news to those who've been victims of evil, victims of oppression, victims of cruelty, you know, like it's, it's very relieving and freeing to know that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay to people who've been brutalized and, and victimized and treated like objects by evil, evil, evil people. God will recompense and God will judge. That's good news. That's good news. He'll, he'll deliver. He'll save. Imagine, like, just put your mind into this scenario. All of your possessions have been taken from you. All of your family has been taken from you. You have been sent to a concentration camp, and it's only because you're a Jew. And what horror do you have to experience and endure in Nazi prison camps? Right? It's just... You read the accounts of the survivors of the Holocaust and it gives you a glimpse into the potential evil that rests, the potential for evil that that exists in all human beings. And if that potential for evil is surrendered to what we all amount to and mercilessly, cruelly, people who were seen as subhuman we're, we're just exterminated in mass. So, so put yourself in that position. And then you hear Russian bombs or American bombs exploding in the distance. And they're just destroying and judging the, bat, you know, the German Nazis. I mean, is that good news? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's kind of good news, you know? So that God will, will come and right the wrongs and rescue the weak and the victim. That's good news. So, yeah, you could just walk through the three angels' messages and there's tons of good news. And in that good news, the people who see Jesus and who have the assurance of eternal life get to share that with others. And really, honestly, that brings rest as well. Recounting, retelling what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do keeps fresh in the minds of believers that they themselves are going home one day and that, that Jesus is going to come again. And we trace the lines of prophecy. And the lesson brings out this. This is what, I'll, what we'll end on today. The, the lesson brings out a really good illustration about prophecy. 
and it talks about Google Maps on our phones. And I remember a time when there weren't iPhones. And uh, my friends all had iPhones and they used to use Google Maps and I used to make fun of them. I literally made fun of them because I'm like, I said, you guys are going to become dependent. I mean, that's just weird. It's like, do you want to live in a world where you don't even know where you're going and you've got to like pull out a, like a little device and it tells you where you want to go. But now that we're all enslaved by iPhones, you know, I'm a slave to Google maps now too. So Google maps is awesome. I don't even know where I'm at when I'm driving down the street and I'm the guy that I would have made fun of, you know, 20 years ago. And, uh, and rightly so, I deserve to be made fun of, and so do all of you, because we're, in de- we're dependent slaves on our little devices and our masters at the tech companies. They know it. But anyway, so, but there's a good illustration about Google Maps, how it talks about the security that Google Maps brings you, right? So you don't, you don't have to be familiar with a city. You could have just shown up in town, and you just pull out your, your little device and go to Google Maps app, which is the most used application on the internet and you can find your way to wherever you want to go. You just type in the destination, type in, you don't even have to type in the destination. You can just type in, you know, whatever vegetarian restaurant and you just, you can get there. And the lesson talks about how prophecy is similar and how the word of God is similar. And just as Google maps gives us that security, because, because we know where we're at, we know where we need to go and we've got directions, Right. And the Bible kind of functions similarly, where we've got Jesus, our Lord, our, our Savior, and, he, and he, he gives us his word and he directs us step by step, moment by moment. And this, is, this, this can bring us ultimate rest that will allow us to endure anything, anything. So, so my encouragement to you guys is, is remember the sun is in the sky and no matter how cloudy it gets, no, how, no matter how many days of rain you have to endure there's a sun up there and, 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 and you've seen it and it's what's going to come eventually. So, so please maintain your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and if you sinned, you have an advocate with the father. If, if you're in dire straits and difficulties and challenges, Jesus is with you and he's willing to comfort your heart and strengthen your heart in the knowledge of his soon return. And he gives you these prophecies so you can see where you are, where you can see, you can see where you're going. And it's really, really powerful. God tells us the end from the beginning through the prophetic word so that that we can trust we're going to get to the end because we see he's accurately predicted the course of human events from a long time ago until the very end. God bless you all as you enjoy Sabbath school this coming week and as you just enjoy your life in Christ. We have so much to be grateful for. And although the world is nuts right now, we know where it all ends. God bless you. Happy Sabbath.